Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. My name is Stephanie Vlakis and I'm an expert certified fertility dietitian and nutritionist and founder of The Dietologist, a multiple award-winning virtual fertility and pregnancy nutrition clinic serving thousands from around the world and of course, the host of this pod, Fertility Friendly Food. This podcast is dedicated to all things health and nutrition in the world of fertility, reproductive health and pregnancy. Each week, I bring you practical snack size episodes to help improve your lifestyle on your trying to conceive journey, alongside guest expert interviews to help inspire you to learn and grow whilst you grow your family. Welcome back another episode of Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. I'm your host, Steph, and today I want to talk about a topic that I feel definitely does not get enough attention. However, when I do speak with my one-on-one clients who have had a long and arduous path to growing their family, the fear of their child being impacted by some of the conditions that they are living with, like endometriosis, or concerns for their child's future fertility based on their own experiences, is a fairly common thought that crosses their minds. In today's episode, I want to discuss how we can protect your child's future fertility with one of my favorite people in the fertility world, Lucy Lines, embryologist and fertility educator behind Two Lines Fertility. And she's also the creator of acclaimed online program IVF WTF. Lucy also runs Future Fertility Safe, so she is the perfect expert to discuss this topic. And I'm so excited to have her back on the podcast. Now, I will mention a couple of notes that we do mention miscarriage in this episode. And if that is a topic that you can't hear about today, we totally understand. I would recommend you connect with the Pink Elephant Support Network, which we leave linked in the show notes for you and perhaps find another episode to tune into. But it is just mentioned in passing, so we don't get into the topic in depth. But just in case, I wanted to make sure that your hearts are protected here. On to the episode. Welcome back, Lucy, to Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. For those who haven't listened, we have recorded an episode with Lucy before all about toxins and endocrine disrupting chemicals and fertility which I'll leave linked in the show notes for you. But for those who are new around here or don't know you, Lucy, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Hi. Thanks so much for having me back again, Steph. I love being here on your podcast. My name is Lucy and I am the embryologist behind Two Lines Fertility. Um, Two Lines Fertility is all about providing you with independent information around your fertility, um, mostly for people who are going through a fertility treatment right now. So I have my program IVF WTF, which is all about supporting people through IVF treatment, but really from an independent perspective. So I worked clinically as an embryologist for a number of years and then moved into supporting the actual patients again. Once I got a bit frustrated with the big business of the IVF clinics, I wanted to go back to really supporting the individual people who are trying to conceive. Yeah, incredible. So today we are going to be talking about how we can protect people's children's future fertility, essentially your child's future fertility. So this is something that I get, I hear a lot from clients like retrospectively is like my mom or my grandma was really fertile. She fell pregnant so easily. So that must mean my fertility will be good too, right? 
is that really how fertility works? And does your family history on that regard really make a significant difference here? Um, Possibly. Um, I think there's a lot of genetic components to things like PCOS and endometriosis and some things like that that impact your whole general health. Obviously, there's genetic components to heart health and and you know all of those kinds of things, so they're going to impact your, your reproductive health as well. But I think particularly in the case of girls first, we're born with all the eggs we'll ever have. So those eggs are created when you're inside your mum's tummy. So you actually have the most eggs you'll ever have three months before you're even born. And so what your mum's doing when she's creating those eggs in her body, in your body, kind of a an interception kind of concept, but if she, you know, for a lot of our clients these days, Steph, they were born in the 80s. And the 80s was kind of a shit time to be born because Everybody had microwaves. Everybody had, you know, they were all reheating their or cooking their green veggies in plastic bags in their microwaves. They were all raised with plastic knives and forks and cutlery and mums were probably smoking and drinking and drinking heaps of coffee. And there was a lot we didn't know about fertility at that time. Hmm. As far as generational impact of fertility, gran was fertile, mum was fertile. That's important to a point, but gran and mum were fertile in the 50s or the 40s or the you know 20s or a long time ago long before plastics were really as much Mm. of a feature as they are in our lives now whereas if you were born in the 80s or the 90s it was kind of a shit time to be born as far as exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals when you were building those all important eggs way back Mm. and also I think the other thing is is that the average age of people trying to conceive has shifted. Really? Just has. even in one generation, even in my generation, my mum would have had me by now and I'd be, you know, three or four years old and I'm not even contemplating having my first child yet. So but it's a different time. The data tells us that um, girls now, 20-year-olds now, are less fertile than their grandmothers were at 35. Wow. Let that sink in. That's wild. It is wild. That's in Shanna Swan's research in her book, Countdown. She says that the average, I'm sure she says the average 20-year-old, but I can double-check that and and let you know and you can put it in the show notes, but the average 20-something is less fertile than her grandmother was at 35. Wow. Just makes so much sense why it feels so much harder for people irrespective of age in present day. Yep, really does. Now, thinking ahead for those who are feeling concerned about their child's future fertility health, I get a lot of clients who finally conceive after a long journey. They're excited, nervous, (laughs) all the feelings. But at some point in that pregnancy or in early parenthood, there's a little thing that happens in their mind and they go, oh, now I'm I'm quite worried about my child's future fertility and their general reproductive health. I see it a lot with my endo clients like, gosh, I'm really worried if I have a little girl that she's going to suffer like I've suffered or, you know, these kinds of thoughts. And what can, what any, what practical things or are there any practical things that a future parent can do to protect their child's future fertility? So there's a couple of things and I've got a, like a, a whole workshop all about this, but if I summarize it down, We know that BPA exposure in pregnancy for baby girl fetuses leads to earlier puberty for those girls. 
So mm. there was research presented at the ESHRA um, conference back in 2020 that um, seemed to indicate and has been backed up by a few more studies since then that baby girl fetuses exposed to BPA in utero go through puberty roughly six months earlier than their counterparts. So if you've been focusing on reducing your exposure to endocrine-disrupting chemicals in the lead-up to pregnancy, carry on that work during pregnancy, especially if you find out that you're pregnant with a daughter. You Just think about the fact that you're actually creating half of your future grandchildren um, while she's in your tummy. So um, think about the plastics exposures that you've got. And, you know, there we're talking about takeaway coffee cups and you may not be drinking much coffee while you're pregnant but (laughs) reheating food in plastic containers in microwaves tinned food that's lined with plastic takeaway uh, you know sales receipts all of these kinds of things exposures to uh, particularly bisphenols which are particularly dangerous um, for baby girl fetuses when they're in utero then when we get to having young children but young boys in particular they don't and they're not born with sperm, you know, or sperm or the ability to make sperm, but they do build the factories that they will later rely on for making sperm. They build yeah. those factories between the ages of about four and eight. So this is why lots of mums of young boys go, oh, my God, he got really aggressive at four. Or, you know, it's three and a half and suddenly he's hitting everything. Or you can tell there's been a testosterone surge at that age. And it's actually part of this adrenage, it's called, where boys start to build the factories that they will later rely on for sperm making. So if we interrupt the hormones that are governing all of the building of those factories, if we interrupt that by using lots of really smelly bath bombs and bubble baths and using plastic cups and spoons and knives and forks and whatever at home you know lots of people will buy all their plastic stuff from Ikea for their kids and cook their kids food on plastic plates and buy the cheap shampoo for them because it smells nice and it's got a dinosaur on the front or whatever what we're (laughs) doing by doing that is exposing them to a whole lot of chemicals that they really don't need to be exposed to and we've been really careful to buy all these beautiful you know bathroom products that are in glass and they smell lovely and they're and you know they're essential oil flavored and whatever and then we give our kids this shit that we buy at the supermarket because it's cheaper and it looks pretty but actually what we're doing is feeding them a whole lot of chemicals that they actually just don't need Mm. or exposing them to a whole lot of chemicals that are interrupting all of their hormone pathways Yeah, I think that's probably like, I know we've had this discussion off mic many a time about like, why are we seeing these huge declines in male fertility? Why are we seeing these huge inclines in diagnostic rates of endometriosis, abnormiosis, PCOS, or fertility impacting potentially conditions? And is it because we're just getting better at measuring these things? We're more interested in them. Technology's better, blah, 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 blah. Or is it like genuinely the prevalence is growing and why would that be? Because our DNA code can't change that fast. It's either epigenetics or environmental factor or both. And one of the biggest kind of, I guess, ideologies is potentially all this endocrine disrupting chemical stuff that's coming to us in utero and, you know, of and course. When people ask me that question, I say, look, I, you know, the data is not irrefutable yet. You know, we can't mm. say... categorically it's environmental exposure because we haven't got enough data about that. No. We can say it's much like the climate change debate in the 80s and 90s, which Mm. you might not be old enough to remember, but I am. 
<laughs> and I can clearly remember people arguing about whether recycling was really going to make a difference. Is yeah. there any point? Is it actually humans that have contributed to the climate change you know, problem? Oh, there's no point. I'm not doing anything. And the response from the climate change people was very much, look, it might be, it might not be, but what have we got to lose by doing it? Mm. And I say the same thing about the environmental exposures to these things. I 100% believe that we will in the future look back at this time and go, oh, my God, I can't believe we did that. Much mm. like we look back at the 40s and say, I can't believe we used to drive cars without seatbelts. Mm. Mind-blowing. I can't believe we used to put our babies in baskets on the front seat of the car without a proper car seat. You know, it's mind-blowing to think that we used to do that. And I think we'll think of the same things in the future when we look back and go, oh, my God, I can't believe we used to feed our children from plastic plates and stuff. And, mm. you know, I can't believe we used to put this shit on their skin thinking mm. that it wasn't impacting them. And, you know, I can't believe we used to expose ourselves. You know, all of these kinds of things are, mm. I think we're going to look back on. But I don't have enough science or data or, or published articles to, to prove that. But I think we don't have a lot to lose by just taking steps towards being better. We can't be the best. There is no formula for no exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals because they are ubiquitous. They are absolutely everywhere. And there's a whole lot of, of exposures that you just can't control. But there's mm. a shitload. I'm sorry, I hope I can say that. But there's a shitload that you can control. Mm. I think if we just take little incremental steps to doing better, we feel better. And then our kids feel better. And then they behave better. And then you know, they, they, they go through puberty better and maybe they're not going to have six miscarriages like their mothers did and mm. maybe they're not going to have really painful periods. Maybe they are. Maybe it's bullshit, but maybe they're not and, and I can feel like I did everything I did to try. Mm. And yeah. I think the biggest thing that I'm seeing now is I'm now seeing teenagers whose mums have gone through fertility struggles or have gone through endometriosis in particular and seeing the signs in their daughters early and getting them help a yeah. lot earlier, 15, 16, you know, being proactive, going to doctors, getting yeah. complementary therapies, dietetics, acupuncture, da 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 da, da. It's, It is going to be different. Yep. It is going to be different. It's not going to be the same as your own experience because you've got those that frame of reference of your own yeah. as well. How soon is too soon to be thinking about your child's future fertility in a practical sense? Preconception. <laughs> yeah. Before you've even conceived them. So we know that children born from fathers who smoked in the three months before conception have a higher incidence of childhood cancer. Wow. So when I tell my clients that I'm brutal, and I say, you're a smoker, just stop. I'd be buggered if I'm putting your wife through a whole lot of IVF for you two to sit next to your child's bedside when they're dealing with leukemia or some kind of childhood cancer, mm. like just stop. But if we know that, then that we can extrapolate from that. There's a whole lot of other stuff that's going on in preconception mm. that's likely impacting a whole lot of stuff in your children's future lives, heart, cardiovascular health, kidney health, liver health, all of these things are important and fertility is included in that. Mm. So if you're hoping that not only you'll be a mother one day or a father one day, but that you might be a grandparent one day too, 
no time is too soon to start thinking about that. Mm. Um, and, and if you haven't thought about it yet, that's okay too. No time's too late either. Mm. We just want to start making the changes. I mean, particularly when it comes to BPA exposure, we can make changes in as short as four or five days. Yeah. You know, there, there's research published from 2016, which is a while ago now. There's probably new research since then that's looking at 15, 16, 17-year-olds or 16, 18-year-olds or whatever, and they just ask them to stop using their normal bathroom products and change them for endocrine-disrupting chemical-free products for four days. And in four days, they noticed a 40% reduction in the urinary output of BPA mm. in those people just after four days. So, you know, some of these um, shorter-acting chemicals, we can actually make changes with really quickly. So it's not too late. You don't go, oh, well, too bad. I stuffed that up. I'll just carry on with what I'm doing. No, no. Let's start making some small changes step by step. And before long, you'll turn around and go, oh, I can't believe I used to use that that horrible dishwasher powder. Like, oh, it smells horrible now. You'll make the little changes that make all the difference. Yeah. I think that's another common one that I hear a lot. It's like, oh, well, especially about endocrine disrupting chemicals like oh well my mum probably you know used all that stuff growing up or while she was pregnant with me like too late doesn't matter but it only takes a few days I I cite the same study about there's one about food as well in three days I think it was and they went from more packaged foods to the whole foods unrefined unpackaged and there was a drop of BPA in the urine by 66 percent so it doesn't take long No, it's a really quick one. And it's also, it's a quick one to do. And it's one that you notice changes in yourself really quickly too. Mm. I know personally from my own experience that in as short a space as as three months, I changed a few things in my life, in my house, you know, in my house, I've got young kids myself, I've got a six-year-old and a 13-year-old, and we started to eliminate things a couple of years ago. Um, And now we're at a point where we have virtually no synthetic fragrances in the house at all. Mm. And the change in me, my husband bought me a um, fragranced candle for our wedding anniversary. It was our wax wedding anniversary. So it's a good <laughs> present. For it. I don't know what else you're going to give for wax, but okay, let's do that. He thought perhaps I should go and have a wax, but I didn't. Anyway, that aside, um, he bought me this candle and it was a fragranced candle, which is, you know, lovely gift. And I thought, oh, fragrance candle. I haven't had a fragrance candle in my house for a really long time. Okay, good. You've given me one. Thank you. Um, It looks like a really nice one. I'll light it. And we lit it. I had it lit for an hour. Now, where are we at now? The 20th of July, our wedding anniversary was the 7th of July. I can still smell it in the house. Mm. I can still smell it. I burnt it for an hour and a half and then I extinguished it and moved it to a cupboard and I can still smell it Mm. two weeks later. So, you know, these things stick around and it's really interesting how quickly you notice the change. And then I turn around and go, wow, there are so many people who fill their houses up with these lovely smelling fragrant candles and you go into a shop and they're full of them Mm. and you're like, and I tell, I'm I'm terrible. My daughter gets so embarrassed going places with me. She's like, mum, will you please stop telling everyone? And I go to the the salespeople, I say, you can't sell this stuff. It's killing people. You can't do it. Mm. They're like, oh, but they really like it. It's nice. Yeah, they're but they don't. It's conditioning. Mm. So right at the beginning, you said, what can people do? You know, what things there are. And obviously, we've focused a lot on the endocrine disrupting chemical stuff, but it's also conditioning. Mm. There's a whole lot of conditioning of young kids that as parents, we can change. So how do we talk about periods? How do we talk about painful periods or, or possible endometriosis, PCOS, cycles? How do we teach our children, our daughters, 
and our sons to understand the menstrual cycle because that starts at home. We can't rely on school to teach them that so that they know how to troubleshoot their own cycle. You know, I'm talking to clients all the time who are 35 who don't understand how their own body works. Mm. It's a travesty. It is. It's, I think education is the key mm. to unlocking all of that for ourselves and, and the next generation because an informed future parent will go on to inform their child. And a lot of that starts at home. Mm. So I'm actually beyond having cycles myself now because I'm old. I'm moving into my, what is that era called? Where you're the, the matriarch oh, yes. moving into my mouth. Um, that aside, when I wasn't in that stage, when I was younger and I was still cycling regularly, we didn't have a lock on our bathroom door. And even if we had, I would never have used it. And my daughter would walk in and, oh, what's that, mum? I'm having a period. What's a period? You know, she was two or three years old. So it's not something she's ever had to learn about. She's just always known that that's what happens and that it's okay and it's normal and it's not scary and it's not shameful and it's not. You know, and if it's painful, then we can change what we eat in the first half of our cycle, which is going to have an impact. And, you know, we, and while we keep the dialogue open about that stuff, mm. she's going to grow up as a very informed and educated young woman. She actually thinks it's a bit hilarious with her girlfriends now because one of her girlfriends was like, oh, you just need to download this app to track your cycle. And she's like, I don't think mum will let me. And so then we were talking about it at home. And I said, of course, you can download that app if you want to. But you also need to understand that 96% of fertility tracking apps and cycle tracking apps are actually incorrect. They're doing maths equations. Yeah. She's like, oh, really? I'm like, I would much prefer you got an old style calendar and stuck it on the wall. And we just wrote a few notes in there each day. How are you feeling? Check in with yourself. I'm boobs a bit sore or, Mm. you know, and just keep track of it. And let's see what patterns emerge. Mm. And learn about your body and understand it so that you know how to expect stuff. And then you know how to troubleshoot it when it's not working the way you want it to. Yeah, absolutely. I remember having a conversation with a young man and it was a friend of a friend and I was talking about my work in in some way or another, which happens a decent amount if you socialise with me. Uh, (laughs) Can't stop, won't stop. That was a vacation. Yeah. (laughs) And... um, he was surprised to learn at, I don't know, he was, would have been in his late 20s that, you know, you can't get pregnant at any point in, in the cycle, mm-hmm. uh, what that, you know, ovulation is the release of an egg and, and that it's, it's mm-hmm. actually a short-lived window where the egg is actually out of the ovary. Yeah. No idea. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, this man has been in a long-term relationship with somebody for multiple years how have you not talked about this? Yeah, no. People just don't talk about it. And I've had consults with people where like, oh, I'd ask about bowels or whatever and a couple's consult and people look at each other like, oh, we don't talk about poo. And I was like, well, if you hope to have a baby together one day and change nappies, poo is going to be on the agenda. So <laughs> let's get comfortable with it now. Poo, periods, blood, get comfortable, sex, get comfortable with talking about it. <laughs> So in high schools these days, they still separate the kids out when they talk about uh, menstrual cycles. (sighs) And I was actually, when I was at ASHRA last couple of weeks ago, um, Fertility Network UK presented some data that they've done on on reproductive health education in schools. And Professor Joyce Harper actually um, was one of her research students or PhD students who presented the information. And 
every single child between the age or person, young person between the ages of, I think they interviewed people between 16 and 18, um, responded with that they want this education together mm. because they feel stigmatised, they feel as if it's secret, hidden, mm. that they shouldn't talk about periods. They want the boys to learn it at the same time as they learn it so that it becomes knowledge about the human race, not something hidden behind toilet doors. Shh, don't tell me. I don't want to hear anyone to hear me tearing the pad off my undies or, mm-hmm. you know, you've got a period. So what? 50% of the population has them once a month for half their lives. Mm-hmm. It's not nothing to hide behind closed doors. And it's also then what are they getting told? I always thought that. I always thought what are they getting told that I'm, yeah. wh- why is it different? And then, like, how do yeah. I know what they know about it? Well, then is the onus on me to explain to them how menstrual cycles yeah. work yeah. because they've got a different thought. It's just round and round. And I think you're so right, like even just what you said about your daughter earlier, like having that open door policy to talk about it and from young, for for irrespective of the sex of your child, I think it's just so important to start there because at the end of the day, protecting your child's fertility, sure, it can be about the practical things that we talked about, but it's also about education. And that conditioning, you know, and I know that my daughter will come to me if something's not right, I know she'll talk to me about mm. it because we've always talked about it. Mm. And so it's not going to be something she's nervous about or ashamed about or or frightened about. And, you know, we go through all the, do we use these undies or, or a cup or a pad or a tampon or a, mm-hmm. what are we comfortable with? Do we buy, let's buy a whole lot of different things and try them and tell me what you think. And, you know, so it's all, it's all just normal conversation. Mm. And, and a lot of people are very affronted by that. I know in primary school, some of her friends were like, oh, you know, why do you know, and parents, friends, and why are you talking about that with your child? And I'm like, why wouldn't you? Yeah. So I think it's all part of it. And I think if we're really looking to protect the future fertility of children, it's two part. It's one, the, the, the physiological things that we can protect them from that, that we know and that we suspect are impacting how hormones function and therefore how fertility works. And then it's the, the education, the conversation, the, the conditioning that we're providing for them in, in their youth as they grow up and what they the conversations they will go on to have with themselves as they go forward like and even the conditioning comes into the endocrine disrupting chemical stuff you know if, if we're raised in households where we have tv dinners with the plastic cover on them and we put fork pricks in them and we cook them in the microwave then when we move out at 25 that's the first thing we're going to go looking for at, at the supermarket mm. so but if we're raised in households where we eat veggies and you know, whole foods and whatever, we might go through a period where we buy those TV dinners for a little while, but we're going to resort back to our comfort food, which is what we were raised on. Mm. So true. I was having that conversation with a client yesterday. <laughs> uh, there's something about being pregnant that makes everybody go back to their childhood nostalgic food yeah. of what their mum would make them as a kid. And it's so interesting because it's all so different. <laughs> Yep. And, and as a young mum, you do go, oh, what did I used to love when, you know, in my lunch boxes? You know, what did I love mum cooking for me? Or yeah. what did I love finding when I opened my lunchbox? I'll do that for my kids too. And, you know, I grew up in, in the 70s. I was in primary school in the 70s. I was doing well if I had a Vegemite sandwich and a chocolate milk on processed white bread. And, you know, we lived out in the country. So mum would often forget to have peanut butter in the house. So she'd make peanut butter out of peanuts in a blender and it was just never quite the same as my friends Mm. but 
you know, and my kids would never put up with that kind of thing these days because they're very precious and, you know, 2020 children, 1970 children. But I think, you know, a lot of that nostalgia comes into it and a lot of that, you know, we went hunting for my grandmother's recipe book Mm. and we go through her recipes and we try and make her lemon pudding and her, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, so a lot of that familial stuff does come into it. Yeah. I think I was saying to this client last night that wherever I go, because I've been brought up to always eat dinner as a family at the table, that even when I'm at a friend's house or whatever, even if they're normal is to each take their plate almost like a cafeteria and go to their room or go to their their little nook often in front of a screen uh to eat like I would instinctively set the table and the expectation would be you come down and we eat at the table yeah we don't scatter because it's a very like and I grew up in a Mediterranean family but it's like you don't do that ever like and having just been to the Mediterranean again you don't do that ever. You always sit at a table and you eat together with people, never in front of a screen Horrified at your desk or whatever. That my daughter was one of only two in her class that had family dinner more than once a week. Like, what? Yeah. What else are you doing? Like, we do it every day. Yeah. And growing up, I always felt like my dad would always be a little bit upset if I would like have an after school activity that ran late or something and we wouldn't all have a dinner together. Yeah. If it was more well, than a couple days in a row, it, it was not it, a good time. <laughs> it makes it tricky when the, the after school activities run late mm. and, you know, you, the, or you've got, you know, a class that goes until 7.30 and, you know, in my family we've got a big age gap between the children so often the, the youngest needs to eat a bit earlier and that does make it a bit trickier. Mm. But we still make an effort to, to sit down around the table as often as we can yeah. and, you know, that's all important too. It's all that intergenerational impact of the mm. way that you approach your lifestyle in multiple ways that is going to impact the way that your children are exposed to different things and that has flow-on effects, absolutely. Lucy, is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up? No, I reckon we've covered it all. I love chatting to you, yeah. Steph. Always stand on a bit of a soapbox and I'm full of lots of ideas. I recognise that it's not possible to be perfect, in inverted commas, because there is no such thing as perfect. Mm. But the fact that you're even considering it as a listener and you're listening to this and going, hmm, yeah, you know what, I, I need to really think about that, you're way steps ahead of, of the average person. So don't beat yourself up if you're not, you know, getting it all right. There is no way to get it all right. None of us have got it all right because we don't know what all right actually is. Mm-hmm. But we make steps towards doing, to, to being better and doing the things we understand. And then once we're comfortable with that, we learn about something new and we do that. And then we learn about something new and we do that. And before long, we've, we've come a long way down the journey. So. Yeah, that's really it. Incredible. Can you share with our listeners where they can connect with you and share a bit more about IVF, WTF and all that good stuff? 100%. So you will find me at twolinesfertility.com.au. You will find me on Instagram at twolinesfertility. You will also find me on Instagram at futurefertilitysafe. I'm not nearly as active on there as I should be, but keep an eye out because there will be more coming I do have my beautiful program IVF WTF coming up that's available intermittently throughout the year, which is particularly for people who are going through IVF treatment right now. And the Future Fertility Safe Protecting the Future Fertility of Your Kids workshop is available online now too. Incredible. We'll leave all those links in the show notes for everyone. 
Thank you again, Lucy, for sharing your expertise, your knowledge. We are so aligned. We chat about these things all the time. And I am looking forward to seeing what our listeners think of this episode. So slide into the DMs. See ya. See ya. Bye. Thank you so much to Lucy for joining us for today's episode. She is always such a delight to talk to and she just brings so much value, the insights that she has. So do connect with Lucy. Uh, The links are all in the show notes for you. And if you like this episode or the podcast in general, can you take five seconds to hit follow on your podcast app right now and also drop us a five-star rating and review. I cannot overstate how important those five-star reviews are to our podcast. So please, if you are enjoying all this free weekly content, just take a moment and leave us a review and a five-star rating. I would be so grateful and I'll be doing a little happy dance reading them and also send it to someone who you think may be interested in giving this episode a listen. That also helps us out a whole bunch. Until next episode, everyone. Bye. Just quickly, are you currently trying to conceive or are you on a fertility journey? If so, you can feel like there are 101 things you could or should be doing when it comes to your preconception or fertility health. It's easy to get overwhelmed really quickly. This is exactly why we created our preconception lifestyle checklist. It's one page for you and one page for your partner, categorized into supplements, diet, lifestyle and environmental factors, and we focus on the low-hanging fruit. These are simple but effective strategies known to help improve your health and well-being for fertility and also for a healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby too. Over 5,000 people have downloaded it already. Do you want your free copy too? Head to the link in the show notes now to swipe your free checklist. Okay, let's get into today's episode. Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast, acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognizes the continuing connections to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to First Nation cultures and to the elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all First Nations people tuning in today. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation.